Hello and welcome to the Wild Hearts Business for Good podcast. My guest today is a leader from Nestle, the world's largest food and beverage company. Robin Sindram is the Sustainable Sourcing Manager at Nestle UK, where, amongst these many responsibilities, Robin is responsible for developing and implementing Nestle's Procurement for Good strategy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Robin. To help our listeners get to know you better, can you tell us a bit about yourself? What path did you take to get where you are today? Hi, Mick. Uh, thanks for inviting me along. Um, okay, about myself. Well, um, I'm uh, Robin Sundaram. I'm married uh, to my wife, Helen. I have two children, two lovely children, uh, Charlie, who's 13 years old, and uh, Kitty, who's 10. Um, they're both, uh, as we record this, we're in the middle of still COVID, and um, they're both homeschooling at the moment, which uh, has, has its challenges, as a lot of people are, are finding. But uh, on the whole, they're, they're coping uh, very well. Um, I live down on the south coast uh, in Lewis, which is a, a small town just near Brighton, five miles from Brighton. And we're surrounded by the lo- lovely uh, um, the downs around here. So it gives us opportunity to to get out of the house and do a bit of walking in the downs. Not that uh, the kids particularly enjoy that, but uh, we drag them out. Um, uh, You asked uh, Mick, uh, what path did I take uh, to get where I am today? Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I left uh, university in the late 80s, showing my age a little bit. And uh, uh, at the time, uh, the the big accountancy firms actually were uh, coming onto campus, trying to get as many people as possible into accountancy. And I'd done a, a degree in economics at Leicester University. And um, I did what a lot of people did is I, I ended up at Pricewaterhouse um, in London in the late 80s when um, there was a lot of money flowing. And um, I found myself uh, in that world in London where uh, Back then, um, it's unheard of now, I think, but back then you'd go for drinks at lunchtime and uh, sometimes on Friday afternoons, <laughs> sometimes on Friday afternoons you wouldn't return to work. Uh, and um, But um, I found, what I found actually was that uh, it wasn't something, it wasn't um, something that I found particularly interesting or exciting. And what I really wanted to do was get a proper management experience. So to cut a long story short, I ended up leaving Pricewaterhouse to go to Marks and Spencer. Um, but uh, my timing wasn't great. It was the early 90s. Recession was uh, was hitting and uh, I had the first kind of big setback of my life, which was I got made redundant after only four months of, uh, of being at Marks and Spencer's. Um, Black Monday, we called it because there were 800 odd people got made redundant on that day um and uh uh, but one thing i did learn actually is i mean i've always still liked marks and spencer and one of the reasons for that is that they went to a lot of effort to um give us counseling support in terms of trying to find uh new jobs and 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 it was my first kind of inclination sort of idea of uh, how a business can still be a force for good even when they're actually making decisions that may not uh, feel right at the time, but they had to do it for economic reasons. I, I, I understood that. Um, but um, yeah, so I ended up going to, to Safeway. I spent five years at, at Safeway, which was my first kind of introduction into the food industry. And um, one of my suppliers at the time was actually Nestle. And uh, uh, Nestle, um, uh, I didn't feel were a particularly good supplier in terms of actually being able to supply product from a customer service perspective. So I ended up um, uh, uh, making the move into Nestle uh, because I thought I could help uh, from a customer service perspective. And um, 
I've now spent, this is now my 25th year at the company, um, enjoyed it uh, thoroughly, um, had lots and lots of different roles throughout what, what we call the farm to fork. So I've spent a lot of time working with our customers like Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda, uh, and a number of others. I've worked in sales, uh, in um, and but predominantly in supply chain. And for the last seven years, I've been within procurement and um and now uh, a, a sustainable sourcing manager for the last three or four years. So that's a bit of a whistle-stop tour as to how I got to where I am today. <laughs> I have this image of you drinking at lunchtime. Just... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just got this image of the 80s, all this fashion, so I'm kind of pitching you like that, which uh, is quite amusing, Robin, I must admit. <laughs> um, we've got a, a, we're going to cover a lot of the really exciting initiatives and very challenging initiatives that you're heading up in Nestle and Nestle Wider. Um, if we can just stick with you um, at the start of the our chat, one thing that I always love to ask leaders in business is in what way their upbringing, and you and I have chatted about this a lot before, in what way your upbringing and personal values influence how you approach your role? Because so often people see a title, a big brand and a big title, and they don't really see the human behind that. Um, and I'm really keen for that to come out in our chat. So in what way? Has your upbringing affected your values and, and how you approach your role professionally? Okay. I mean, I think my upbringing has a, had a massive impact on how I approach uh, life in general, really, uh, and my work. So uh, my dad, uh, I was born in Sri Lanka um, back in 1966, and um, my dad came over to the UK. He, he was he did various jobs. He was a fisherman, and he um, he was studying to to do law actually. Um, and he decided um, uh, that he wanted to come to the he UK. He was a fisherman in Sri Lanka, or a fisherman in in Sri Lanka. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just thinking. <laughs> I, I think I've got some uh, friends, you know, family in the past that were fishermen, but that was in the North Sea. So I think he had a much nicer time of it in Sri Lanka than the North Sea, I would imagine. Yeah, I think he probably had a, a more tropical uh, uh, version of fishing. Um, but uh, but he also was studying for law, and he I think he had a job in the local post office or something. But he had a bit of a wanderlust, so he decided to come over. When I was only six months old, he came over. He found very quickly how difficult it was being an immigrant in uh, Sri Lanka uh, from Sri Lanka in the 60s but it was a time when the government was inviting people from the Commonwealth over um, uh, so it was relatively easy to get jobs but not easy to get um, to go to university so he abandoned his uh, law ideas and um, uh, got a job um, uh, in uh, at British gas actually and then he got he um, he arranged for my my mum and I to come over. So I was ten months old when we came to the UK. And my um, I'm now I've got three younger brothers now, and um, we um, uh, my main memories of growing up actually were our house was uh, we grew up in Wimbledon, and our house was always full. There was always a lot of noise. There were always people around. And one of the things that he taught you know he taught us all is that how you've really got to look out for other people so he um uh, even though we, it was a small house we were all squashed in together he always made sure that one of our bedrooms was available for students from sri lanka and he would so when wow. they came over he would um 
he would let them stay in the house. Uh, so we always had, uh, and there would be two of them in the room quite squashed in together. But um, he, because he was one of the first Sri Lankan Tamils to come over, he um, he knew how things worked. He would write letters for people when they came over to, to help get them jobs or if they had to, to anything really, he would sort of uh, um, help them through that process. And so I was sort of seeing that as I grew up. He also was quite... Um, I guess he was quite different for the times in that he was uh, always helping out around the house. He was the main cook, actually. Um, and uh, 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 well, I say main cook. My mum cooked a lot as well. My dad was the, uh, I guess, the the the, uh, the chef when when the good meals had to be done. Um, and also, um, I mean, my mum at the time, my mum's uh, was bipolar. We didn't really know back then because it wasn't talked about but um oh. she had significant mental health issues and once in a while she would um she would just suddenly disappear and we'd be like oh where's mum gone and my dad would say oh yeah she's in hospital and um so we'd go and visit her in hospital and back then it was when they used to do the um electric shock therapy as well so so we'd turn up and she'd be just like if you've seen now uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest it was it was very much like that and i just so that was our first i guess indication as me and my brothers of of mental health and the impact of um of that that it has on my on families and um uh yeah so my dad was kind of managing you know four sons uh, a wife that was uh, had had these challenges and also trying to juggle a job and also look after these these students that were coming over um so that kind of i guess i was sort of grew up um with that uh, going on and then um and then really i think what as was the biggest eye opener of everything really was was the civil war kicked off in in uh, Sri Lanka in 1983 and um my dad had five sisters my mum uh, uh, had a one brother and uh, sorry two brothers and one sister but they'd already left Sri Lanka whereas all of my my dad's uh, sisters were they all lived in the same village and they all actually lived in the same road it was called Kurumba city road and the army came in and, and one day just basically bombed a whole load of houses and a number of our uh, uh, of our houses got bombed fortunately none of our relatives were killed but um mm-hmm. the army just took over the whole village and to this day they still have half the village so our house that we grew up in i was fortunate enough to go back um uh, about three or four years ago to, to back to the village but um uh, our house is completely overgrown. It's like if you've watched um, the um, uh, uh, what was it, the um, Lara Croft film with Angelina Jolie, uh, when she's in Cambodia in Angkor Wat, and you see all these uh-huh. ruins covered in trees. That's what our house was like. You could not see the house for the trees and all the vegetation around it. Um, but what my dad did was one by one, even though he didn't have much money, he brought over my cousins uh, to the UK and they're all quite young. The youngest was 13 at the time. The oldest, I think, was 19 or 20. He brought over eight or nine of them and um, and put them into schools. And But then when they um, started to work, uh, because they didn't really speak English and they were really struggling with the, the cultural change, um, 
they went into jobs working in petrol stations in as cleaners real kind of um low level jobs and uh, i saw them they started to get to find wives and husbands they started to have children my cousins and um they would uh, you know i was i've seen this happen in front of my eyes they were working day and night they didn't really have social lives but they basically um, used all their money to to get extra tuition for their children. And what's really amazing now is that all of their children uh, pretty much um, have all started going to university, really started to get really good careers as as doctors, um, accountants, uh, you know, the kinds of careers that we were told when we were growing up that we should uh, we should try and aspire to. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that my cousin's children are now 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 doing that so i guess uh, i guess in a roundabout way what i'm 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 trying to say is that um a number of those things that that i grew up with whether it be the mental health issues of my mum or the importance of uh, looking after other people and also um equality uh, and um the importance of equalities and you know I'm, i grew up in the 80s when uh when the national front and the bnp were at their height i would i remember being chased down the street by skinheads and being abused and all the rest and so i was um uh grew up with um this uh, this feeling of um uh, equality and the importance of equality and whether it be your your gender your sexual orientation your race your culture your religion shouldn't matter we're all human beings at the end of the day all trying to strive do our best um for ourselves and for our for the for our children and that has always been top of mind um, when I carry out sort of my job and so being sustainable sourcing manager um means that I can really work hard to try and make sure that our our sustainability uh, sourcing policies and working with our suppliers, uh, we try and reflect uh, the importance of e- equality in particular, social equality and social mobility in what we do. Wow. <laughs> I mean, there's so... I mean, I thought I knew you, Robin, but the, I mean, that story is so many... Um, things we could take from that. I mean, upon you know, reflecting on that, that Britain's, the immigrant story in Britain is incredible. You know, what the original immigrants, especially um, from the Caribbean and, you know, Southern Asia, et cetera, what they went through. And it, you reminded me of, um, there's one of the Wild Hearts schools in Wimbledon, funnily enough. Oh, really? And, yeah. And these kids are from every country you could imagine, you know, vast majority of them. Um, are BME, BAME kids. And this school is remarkable. And one thing that you said, it was one of the parents when I did a speech there said, um, if you're a refugee or if you're an immigrant, the one thing that you know will help your kid escape what you went through is education. Yes. Um, and that's why, you know, you and I share that passion. That's why you're on our, I imagine, our National Advisory Board for Schools. It's, it is the vehicle for transformation for anybody. Um, sorry there's just so many things we could take from that and you've kind of ruined all my questions Robin because I had so many questions I wanted to ask you now we could go into the do a deep dive into everything you just covered there (laughs) the let me come to this then there's I think one thing that is a theme that runs through so many of your experiences and I'm, I'm very grateful to you for opening up with that is the level of empathy you must have experienced like what is it like to suffer from a mental health issue what is it like for the family what is it like being the underdog what's it like being being the outsider there's so many points there um 
in your own experience in your career, how did that help you deal with setbacks and failures in a professional setting? Um, there were a lot of character building experiences there. How could you draw on them when maybe you've, you've faced your own setbacks um, in a professional setting? Yeah, um, I guess a couple of things come to mind. Firstly, is that I've just learned, um, uh, I think I've learned to be quite tenacious. Um, and so uh, when when I do get knockbacks or, or things um, don't quite go my way, it's trying to find uh, a different approach. And I think it was, um, uh, I think it was Oprah Winfrey, actually, who said that um, <laughs> it, it, something along the lines of, um, uh, there's no such thing as failure. It's just life telling you to approach uh, approach the situation in a different way, or, or try and find a different approach. Uh, and um, and um, I remember quite early on in my career when I was at Safeway. I think I touched on it. I remember uh, uh, I was my job at the time. It was I'd just been made redundant from MNS. I t- if I'm honest, I took this job just because I really needed a job and mm. and I was ordering uh, a stock um, from our suppliers and uh, and one of our suppliers failed to deliver and and uh, what you're meant to do is try and get it re- get a rebooking or whatever it was and I remember I was just thinking oh this is too hard there's no way they're going to be able to re-deliver within the next day or so I remember my boss saying to me well, why are we out of stock what have you done about it and I and I said, oh, I've spoken to them. I think it was a bit of a white lie, and, and said, and said uh, uh, they can't do it. And he he just rang them up and said, look, can you do it for us tomorrow? And they said, yes, we can. And I remember being embarrassed, but I also, uh, but he did it in front of uh, the rest of the team. And I remember thinking, um, uh, I'm never going to be in this situation ever again, where I haven't tried everything I can. Uh, to fix the problem because he showed me you can but I also remember learning a a vital lesson about management or leadership is that you do not embarrass other people uh, you know make them look small Um, so there was a couple of very um, very uh, quick things I learned uh, early on in my career which I've always kind of maintained and I've always you know it's one of those things about if you're going to be a leader um, and you want people to follow you one of the worst thing you can do is make someone look uh, look small uh, mm. and belittle them in some way um, another thing that it's not I guess it's not quite a failure but one thing that happened when I took this role um, as um, uh, sustainable sourcing manager is um, it, my boss at the time uh, he uh, I mean I hadn't done anything like this uh, and he was convinced that I could do a good job uh, in the role. So he gave it to me. And uh, I remember mutterings at the time from other people within procurement who'd been in it f- procurement for many years, basically uh, along the lines of, oh, why has he chosen Robin to do this? He'll he'll uh, he'll um, he'll never be, do a good job of it. And uh, one of the things I had to do at first was um, work with um, our dairy cooperative that we buy fresh milk from and um, we'd spent years and years my the, the previous boss before this one and uh, my predecessors had spent 10 years trying to get uh, this supplier uh, to open up about the, the costings and uh, and but uh, and um, really just to work more closely with us more collaboratively and this supplier uh, wasn't doing that 
there was really zero trust in the relationship. And um, one thing that I'm very proud of is that within six months of uh, of taking on this role, not only did we have a, a much more open relationship, but they just opened up with all their costings, something that really? we'd spent 10 years uh, <laughs> trying to do, and uh, I'd managed it within six months. Uh, how did and you pure... do that, Robin? You're making it sound like I'd managed it in six months. It, what, what did you do differently? It just comes down to treating people as people, you know, and ultimately it's very easy to um, treat businesses uh, or treat um, uh, everyone in a business as one, lump them all together, you are just Mm. one faceless company or or to just try and just trying we were you know we're looking for cost savings you know it was traditional procurement and i'm sure we'll get on to uh, what procurement uh, should look like in the future at least from my perspective but it was very traditional old school procurement you bash your supplier over the head uh, you don't develop any relationships you don't develop mm. that that you know that because ultimately at, at the end of the day we're all trying our best you know and um and it's just finding that middle ground and that's what I was able to do really is to find that middle ground uh, meet them you know uh, and treat them um, with respect ultimately. you remind me of something that sorry um, one of my mentors said to me before he says everybody thinks they're dealing with a company you know these large global brands especially he says you're not you're dealing with a person these companies are made up of people um, that's the that's the power of culture, though, isn't it? That do people have permission to feel they can act in a certain way or treat people the way you're talking about? Um, coming on to procurement, um, Nestle have done a lot of work uh, on social responsibility in your supply chain, um, areas such as food waste, food security, sustainable food practices. I think I'm fascinated to understand, coming from your personal values, you know, you're talking about, you're obviously driven by very deeply held values um these areas that we're going to come on to are manifestations of how we're going to address major global problems can you tell us more about these initiatives and and how you see your role in expanding them in the future yeah i mean we have um some significant challenges uh, globally um and uh, and one thing that's very very clear is uh, one business on their own cannot make a massive difference. So I think the first thing um, uh, that we all need to understand, and Nestle really understands, is that the importance of collaboration. So this is about uh, we need to collaborate with suppliers, uh, you know, all the way through back to our our farmers that uh, you know grow grow the ingredients to make our product. But we have to collaborate with people in civil society. We have to collaborate with all the NGOs uh, that they're at, that are out there. We have to collaborate with governments, with our customers. Customers, and that's uh, you know that could be retail customers, it could be our out-of-home customers, and ultimately you know with our with our consumers as well. So um, so these big challenges that we have, it, it is about collaboration. The other key thing I think more and more important is transparency. You know we can't again it's very very easy to see um, the uh, big organisations as as being these big black boxes that um, uh, some something uh, there are the dark arts going on. Uh, within mm. there and ultimately uh, they are just these companies are trying to um, make as much money as they can at the expense of uh, people in the planet and um, that's not the case I mean what what we um, what we are looking to do is we you know there are there's currently seven and a half billion people 
on the planet. There are going to be 10 and a half, maybe 11 billion by, by 2050. They need to be fed. And, you know, currently 54% of the people in, in the world live in cities. The prediction is that by 2050, 75% of the population will be living in cities. We won't be all be able to grow our own food. So there is a requirement for companies like Nestle who provide packaged um, you know, products of food, uh, both for animals and for human beings, um, uh, to, to exist. So what we need to do is we need to be able to manage this huge requirement to be fed, um, but in a way that allows us to... Um, to, to not have uh, any negative impact on, on the planet and to do it in a way that ultimately actually actively helps people as well, uh, whether that's be uh, the social conditions with, within, uh, within which they work um, or economically as well, to be able to make a living for themselves and for their families. Those are the big challenges that we have and uh, I can come on to the number of things that we're doing to try and address yeah, those Could you challenges. give us some examples because I mean obviously the the scale of the challenge is vast um, and in our conversations in the past you've given me a real insight into how one decision well-intentioned decision can have an impact, completely unintended impact elsewhere. And also there's so many areas, whether it's reducing carbon emissions or environmental degradation or plastic waste. waste. Could you touch on how you prioritise your strategy? And secondly, some specific examples of things that you're doing, but also the challenges involved in that. Could Would you mind chatting us through that yeah i, I can there's a there's a there's a, a lot but i'll try and um i'll try and uh, do it in a way that's uh, relatively structured if i can um so uh, i mean the biggest challenge is uh, is um uh, climate change and uh, the human impact on on that uh, we know it's happening we're all experiencing it uh, right now so we as a company have made a commitment that by 2050 uh, we will be net zero as a business in terms of our greenhouse gas uh, emissions and that's um we buy one percent of the world's agricultural output so we have a huge environmental footprint um agriculture is the number one um cause of um of these uh, greenhouse gases there's also agriculture is responsible for a significant amount of water uh, usage as well and the amount of land that um uh, that goes into ag agriculture is significant so we've got made this commitment about 2050 but in reality to be able to achieve uh, uh to, to achieve that, um, we have to look at our entire farm to fork. And actually, what's within our direct control through our operations, through our factories and, and offices, is only about 5% of that impact. So we have to work um, with our uh, with our supply base all the way back to, to farmers. And we have to work at the other end as well with consumption. So, you know, every time you, you have a Nest Cafe and you, you boil your kettle, that has an impact on on our environmental footprint. So, mm -hmm. working working end to end. So that's our, I, I guess, our biggest commitment and our, our our number one focus is how can we we achieve that. And I can come on to uh, the key things that we need to to do around that. But the second is uh, the highest profile at the moment probably is um, is plastics and packaging. So mm -hmm. again, we've made a commitment that by twenty twenty five. Um, all of our packaging 
will be reusable or recyclable. Now that is a, a massive task. We are the, the world's biggest food and drink company. We have um, operations in over 80 countries. We're, we're actually selling products in in something like 187 um, countries around the world. So uh, there's clearly a huge amount of packaging that goes into um, our product. Um, but even if we were to achieve that, say, even if we did it next year, all, all of our packaging is recyclable or reusable. The reality is we, you will still see our products, among, as well as other, other companies' products, on the beaches, in rivers. Um, so getting to 100% isn't enough. Uh, and uh, so we have to find ways, and we are working on ways to... Um, to make sure that um, uh, the overall issue uh, is um, is looked at. So, uh, firstly, we have to work with um, with local councils and local government in terms of how do we make it easier for consumers to to uh, actually recycle um, their products. So, curbside recycling, um, because we've got three hundred ninety odd, four hundred or so councils, all do it slightly differently. So, how can we help to uh, to uh, with you know um, uh, to to do that, but secondly, in this country, we also um, we don't actually uh, recycle everything within the UK. We don't have the processing capability to do that, and actually, two thirds of it gets sent overseas. So again, how can we as Nestle help to invest in the infrastructure that we have in the UK to improve the actual recycling capability? within the UK. So that's work uh, that we're doing. And then thirdly, uh, even once you can recycle it, how much of it can we then reuse? So for instance, um, you know, our Buxton bottles have got um, recycled, uh, they're made from recycled bottles, but that capability again, isn't isn't huge in the UK and we need to invest. uh, And therefore, again, we are doing things we're working um, on on an initiative up in Scotland exactly on this. So how can we invest back into uh, enabling this uh, recycling so that we have this um, ultimately, you've, you'll have heard the term the circular economy. So how mm. can we really focus on 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 this uh, circular economy? And then finally, it's about education, really, and labeling. So how can we really uh, make sure that our products have got really clear labeling about uh, what can and can't be recycled? And ultimately, mm. all of it will be recyclable. Um, but also, how can we educate people? Because currently, still too much that can be recycled isn't recycled um so there's there's they're the they're the big two uh things i'd say carbon and um plastics and packaging at the moment but there is there's a huge amount to be done in terms of our responsible sourcing program which looks at human rights within our supply chain it looks at um it looks at health and safety in our supply chain all the way back up it looks at animal welfare and making sure that animal standards are at at the highest levels possible all the time Mm -hmm. and um it looks at what we call business integrity so there's no bit there's no corruption bribery the local laws of, of every country are adhered to um so there's a number of different elements to our um, responsible sourcing program. And this is where we get into the, this gray, because it's very, very easy to see things in very black and white terms. But um, in reality, life is just lots of shades of gray. And we, and we really see this in in, uh, in our responsible sourcing program. But, but Robin, one thing that struck I me, mean, the sheer scale of the task that you're taking on, I mean, to just go back to one point you made if you're saying you want to be net zero by 2050 
but only 5% of your carbon footprint is your own offices and, and, in, and Nestle's own infrastructure. Are you saying that 95% of the, the people you need to influence are basically not our suppliers to Nestle, but are not under Nestle's direct control? And many might be in different countries where you may not have that extent, the influence that you would need to make change. How do you influence farmers and producers across multiple cultures and police that and make that happen? That's a daunting task. It is. It, it's a huge challenge, and it's a, it's and this is goes back to my point about it. it it's all about collaboration, um, but it's also about having data. So it needs to be science based uh, what you do. So there's at the moment, you know, there are a number of uh, different ways to to measure carbon. The ways to understand, um, uh, you know, because a lot of people don't realise, but there's actually more carbon in the ground than in the air. So our farming practices. Um, over the last 30, 40 years, as we've become more intensive in the way that we farm, we've actually accelerated the release of that carbon and, and we're degrading uh, the soil so much that the organic structure of the soils is depleted, which again um, uh, has a significant issues. So um, so we, we do, we're dependent on our farmers and in fact, that's where the biggest opportunity is, is our farmers around the world. So I guess to answer your question, we have to find ways to incentivize uh, our farmer base um, to to change uh, 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 their sort of production methods but they, it, it needs to work for farms themselves it needs to work ultimately uh, you know because it's got to work for them economically it's got to work for them in terms of ease of implementation so we work with our suppliers to help deliver that we work with uh, academics to help pull together the the, the the proof the scientific proof of what works and doesn't work um, but we have to work with governments as well because you've got you know in some countries um, governments have got active policies um, around uh, around farming and, and environment and food and and in other countries not so much but you need um uh, governmental support as well and clearly working with our our, our ngos and our partners um uh, as well so it's everyone kind of working together um and um to achieve that and uh, there are there are um you, you do have there are tensions um within that so for instance uh, if i come back to sort of uh, from a procurement perspective i mean one of the things that is is important when you're a, a, a procurement professional is you need to make sure that you um i mean a lot of people think it's all about savings yes savings are important but ultimately uh, we're here to ensure supply and mitigate risk they're the key things from a procurement perspective you need to deliver. And so to ensure supply to your factories, you need to be able to to make sure that your suppliers don't, you know, if they were to go out of business, God forbid, or that you're able to switch supply quickly. So you can't have all of your eggs in one basket. But the, the the negative of that is if you want to develop long term, you really want to develop a long term partnership with, say, um, a farming cooperative or uh, to be able to implement uh, sustainable farming practices. You can't switch supply constantly because they won't have the trust in, in Nestle uh, that we're, we're there in it for the long term. Mm-hmm. Similarly, when we've, we've got to try and develop um, packaging solutions. Um, that needs a, a huge amount of innovation. Um, but if you're a supplier to Nestle, you need to have some sort of long-term commitment again that we're not suddenly going to walk away or, um, you know, 
because that supplier is going to have to invest. So we've got this tension always between um, uh, not having all our eggs in one basket, as I said, being able to switch supply if we need to from a uh, from a mitigating risk perspective. But at the same time, we need to be able to uh, have these strategic longer term partnerships to really develop long term sustainable solutions to some of these big big challenges that we have. So this tension is always there within procurement and we're having to find ways to to, to solve that. Um, it's interesting for me, you know, I've discussed the, the global goals, UN global goals um, on many occasions and overwhelmingly what I can hear you saying through these examples is 17 collaboration and partnerships, that these issues are so multifaceted and, and reach into so many different areas of different geographic areas and different areas of jurisdiction and to think one business or one person one government can change it alone is diluted um but the, again um you were touching on the global scale of you know dealing with people in different cultures and dealing with farmers in different areas and then even coming back to if you're going to make uh, your plastic packaging reusable and recyclable it even comes down to bin, bins in england yes. <laughs> and council policies etc yes. i think one thing I'd really appreciate, I think our listeners would really appreciate, Robin, if you, you're working on a, a, in both the micro and the macro level, and you've outlined the scale of the problems and the challenges that you face, it'd be really helpful, I think, if maybe you could give us an example, just a little mini case study, if you will, of what that can look like. Um, and I'm, I think your, your shared value, uh, creating shared value prize is a good example, because it, that gives you the chance to work with social enterprises, focused on nutrition and water, rural development. Um, is there any social enterprise examples you could give us of how you've integrated it into your business model or how you've worked with a social enterprise to help bring your strategies or your your goals to life uh yeah um am i allowed to talk about wild hearts or uh <laughs> um oh, i'd love you to <laughs> yeah. um you, of course because you're um, the first social enterprise uh, that we're actually have actively started to work with and can um, I just say that that question is not set up for you to talk about wild hearts in case anybody's rolling their eyes and <laughs> thinking of me. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, going back to the, the broader pictures, something that has underpinned uh, the way that Nestle has worked for many, many years is this idea of creating shared value. And, mm -hmm. and what that means is that we can create value for our shareholders. And ultimately, we are a company that has shareholders um, and we have to create value for our, our shareholders. And we've been around for 154 years. So we've done a, a good job of doing that. But one of the reasons we've been able to do that and be around for such a long time is that the second half of that is we, we believe we can create value for society at the same time. And for a company to really prosper long term, you have to be able to do both. And uh, I think the simple fact that we've been around for such a long time shows that we have been able to do that um, but creating value for society and what does that look like uh, you know and that's a, a number of things but importantly it's um, it's uh, being able to um, create social value um, it's it's ultimately it's about people still uh, at the end of the day and um, and so we um, uh, we've done a lot in terms of I talked about a responsive sourcing program. So an example would be our, our uh, cocoa so sourcing in, in Ivory Ivory Coast in Ghana. I mean, we were we started working with the Fair Labour Association a few years ago. We asked them to come in and look at um, uh, 
uh, you know what goes on in Ivory Coast and Ghana, uh, with a with an understanding that actually you know we know children work on some of these on these farms and plantations, they always they have done for many many years, and what um, this was allowed us to do firstly was to be able to you know understand the um, scale of the issue, secondly is really start to work with our suppliers um with the support of the fair labor association to understand well what can we do to uh to uh, ultimately uh, stop this issue and it, it's it comes down to poverty all of the underlying most of this is poverty so how can you um how can you um uh, what can you do as a, as a company and uh, you know you can you can work um uh, with a number of ngos and you can pay a premium and we do uh, to to try and support um support the farmers but we've also we've tried to go a step further and say well, well how can you help the community as as well as individual farmers so we've built um schools to try and get and we've built uh, something like 50 schools to try and get children into the schools but what you start to realize more and more and this is um this is uh, back to my point about the different sort of shades of gray and, and things aren't black and white is that isn't necessarily a solution on its own so when you start to dig deeper you start to realize actually Actually, well, some children still aren't going to school. So why is that? You know, uh, we've built the schools and then you start to realise, well, some of them don't have um, uh, birth certificates to prove how old they are. And this is a bit of a challenge. So in some areas, and we found actually with the Nescafe plan in, in Kenya that, um, uh, that um, uh, these children are going to school, but um, they're, going, they're, they're not doing particularly well. And that's because they're hungry. So then you've got to take a you've got to take a, a another look and you've got to dig deeper and and what we identified actually is that um, some of these farmers are um, don't know necessarily what um, food uh, to grow and to to cook to be able to give uh, their families the right kind of nutritional um, uh, support uh, and um, and so then you start to we started training some of our our farmers on how can you grow the right herbs spices vegetables in your gardens and you're on your farm to be able to cook the right foods we've actually been able to help some of them to actually learn to cook and this isn't just about the women this is the men as well teaching them to cook um so you start to when you start to dig deeper you start to to realize um that you one solution isn't uh, isn't the right solution for mm. all and, and that may seem obvious but it's only when you dig deep and so we as a business are starting to move uh, more towards really understanding the impact of of what we do so yes we do uh, you know one of the things we've seen a great increase throughout the world you know uh, the world is responsible sourcing audits and and uh, and and making sure that compliance and compliance yes is important but mm -hmm. we're trying to go beyond compliance to really starting to understand what is the impact of uh, of, of uh, our policies and what can we actively do on the ground you know, I think that's one of the things that fascinates me, the power of procurement professionals. Um, there was a fantastic article in Forbes magazine featuring Johnson Johnson and actually um, using World Health as a case study, which I was very proud of. And the, the headline was, will the chief procurement officer become the chief purpose officer? Um, where, where you spend your money is ultimately how you demonstrate your value. Um, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So so often people, well-meaning people, would go into a village, such as one example, the example you cited, and want 
to make a difference, but only by really getting under the skin of actually why are these issues existing. And that takes long-term commitment. And as you said earlier, one of your values, tenacity, to get to the root. And also you have to work with the people rather than patronising them, going and trying to do it for them. Um, yes. The yeah. power of procurement to make these changes, If I mean, consumer demand will be a key part and also government demands, but also people like you saying, I want to make this difference. And by working with my customers, I can help bring that to life. That does have the potential to be genuinely transformative. Yes. Um, on that note then, Robin, what do you think are the biggest opportunities and threats that procurement leaders need to be aware of? And you've covered a lot of them. And I think obviously, given that you're in the food industry, you're really at the, the sharp edge of that. But in a wider sense, what do you think your peers have to be aware of? Yeah, I love I love that quote. By the way, that you know, in the future, the chief procurement officer is going to be the the chief purpose officer. Because for me, I think if it feels right, um, but I think uh, my own my own view is I think many procurement organisations are still a long way from that. I think there's still a, a very traditional view of procurement mm. and. Um, even within our, our own organization as well, there, there's various levels of um, of uh, engagement a, across that. And that's not to say that uh, traditional procurement isn't right, because it is, because uh, it's always delivered in terms of, uh, you know, uh, going back to my earlier points about savings, it's important for I mean, procurement there ultimately are, are there to find the savings, but um, but also ensuring supply, mitigate risk, ensure we have the right quality of product that we're coming in so that we, we make the best products available because, you know, our our, our purpose within the, uh, within um, uh, within uh, Nestle from procurement perspective uh, is to deliver the best to Nestle so that Nestle can deliver the best to our consumers. Um, and so a lot of the traditional elements are important, but what I... I guess a, th a threat stroke opportunity is that you can still save money, uh, but you can still you can be much more efficient in the way that you do it, um, and you can still uh, deliver uh, value to the business, um, but in a way that brings social, economic, environmental uh, uh, value as well. So, and I think this is the the big opportunity. Um, for procurement is to look at all the challenges that the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, I think, capture very well globally. They may not all be relevant to, to that, that procurement organization, but a number of them will be. And is to really face into that and say, well, what can we do around climate change? Well, actually, to focus on regenerative agriculture, if I give Nestle as an example, you focus on re regenerative agriculture. You start from, uh, you go from, I think, where a lot of businesses have been is about, that. well, let's try and do no harm is the approach, that, the traditional approach to CSR and start to flip it into, well, how can we do good? Yeah, so mm -hmm. um, so start to take this different uh, mindset. So regenerative agriculture is all about that. But ultimately, the benefits um, are huge because by um, by doing that, you actually uh, start to um, you start to improve the quality of your soils and the organic matter, which then starts to reduce the carbon um, uh, impact that you have. You start to make you more resilient to climate change. So actually, you start to deliver the other things that procurement's all about, which is security of supply. You start to improve the security of your supply by 
um, implementing those practices, but at the same time, you're starting to help the planet a lot more. Um, so that's one example. But the other, the other big one, uh, or one of the big ones of many, is this idea of helping society uh, through things like working with social enterprises. And this is where our relationship relationship with Wild Hearts, I think, is an incredible example of a win-win-win all around because we are. Um, by uh, you know reimagining our procurement spend and starting to buy our office supplies um, from Wild Hearts, we're able to we're getting office supplies that uh, at the moment eighty percent of those supplies now are um, uh, are made from um, recycled material or can be reused or recycled, which is a massive increase on the office supplies that we had previously mm -hmm. so we're already starting to uh, have a, an environmental impact but at the same time um wild hearts um you know we we know that uh, by buying from wild hearts we're having we're impacting uh, and helping to transform lives all around the world whether it be the micro tyco in the uk or through the uh, uh the um starter program uh, and the uh micro loans that we that we do to to women in the developing world so we know we're making an impact from a, a social perspective but also um in terms of employee engagement you know people in our business feel good about the fact that we can uh through procurement just changing our spend uh, we're making a, a positive impact in communities um, and what that also allows us to do is not only do we in increase our engagement but we're going to increase retention of people within the business and importantly it's going to enable us to employ the right people going forward as well and we all know that particularly younger people coming through this is really really important to them mm. and rightly so this is their future we're talking about so um so all of this there there is there are so many win-wins uh, from that uh just working with wild hearts and working with other social enterprises and there are many there and we, it's one of the things that i'm really keen uh that we find uh, ways to accelerate but having said that we have to make sure that it's right uh, for us as a business so we need to make sure that that social enterprise is able to still achieve all of the things that our consumers expect so the right quality you know um, that you're able that they're able to supply um, uh, service levels that we expect so all all of the things that um, our consumers would expect that social enterprise still needs to be able to deliver as well absolutely I mean that's why world has Stratline is business for good and business has to compete on its own uh, on its own merits and deliver and that's uh, that is a challenge for social enterprise to deliver their impact but still be able to compete on a level playing field with other uh, players you know interesting you made a very good point there Robin um, one stat that I find very inspirational is that by 2025 75% of the world's workforce will want to work for a company that creates so positive social impact and wider impact um, in the world and I think it's fascinating and you, you sometimes it, it, it's getting much rarer now but you come across maybe some procurement people that are a wee bit old school and that it's only price whereas they're missing the wider value so in terms of inspiring customers attracting top talent retaining talent staff engagement if the company doesn't have a wider credible social vision and social impact they're going to be hemorrhaging money through recruitment costs, staff retention, staff attrition, etc., that yes. they're not, but they're only focusing on the price of one thing rather than the holistic approach of their business. Um, I think it's fascinating, that, and one thing I find very inspirational is that you are 
seeing all the opportunities for positive change that procurement professionals can deliver rather than saying, oh God, I've got to comply with all these new demands on my role. It's a and it's a, a great opportunity to expand your role and make a real credible, lasting difference. On that theme, then, if, and I could talk to you all day, Robin, <laughs> the um, the last question then, and you've touched on it, but if someone's listening to you, and I know there'll be so many people listening to you have been really moved and inspired, and I know I have been, and I'm very grateful to you for the opening up to us today. Um, what advice would you give to a business leader procurement or otherwise, who want to have a successful career, but want to make a positive difference. What takeaways could they have from today to help them? Okay. Um, my advice would be, firstly, is uh, to answer your question around deliberate, you know, achieving a good career in procurement, but also having that social impact, is that there are really good examples of procurement um, delivering social impact out there really good examples. So I would say, look externally, look, find those examples um, and and then start to think about, well, how can, how can I potentially look to deliver something like that in my organization? I think secondly is sometimes um, uh, there are procurement professionals or procurement teams that are they're just one small element of a business where they kind of sit on their own in the corner. People kind of go, well, what do those guys do over there? Oh, yeah, they save us money. Yeah, great. I would say you've got to be an integral part of your organization and you've got to find a way to do that. And that's and everyone in the organization is open to procurement because the first thing they think is, oh, these, this team is going to help help um, deliver some savings, bring us some money. Great. So they want to talk to you. So there is an open door already. For, but, but then that gives you a great opportunity to go in and say, you know what, we can do this, but actually um, we can deliver the things that you want. We can save you some money. We can, um, we can ensure that you get supplied to the factory or, or, you know, I'm talking about FMCG here. It'll be different in different organizations, different industries. But ultimately, you know what, I, we can do this. We can help drive our um, uh, business for good strategy. Yeah, we can help really make an impact in the communities that we have. And this is by working with this social enterprise or that social enterprise. We can help uh, drive, uh, you know, help some resiliency as a business to climate change by really working with these farmers to help implement these practices. We can, uh, you know, all of these different things that procurement can deliver that we've talked about. Uh, it's just really being able to bring that alive in a way to the stakeholders in the business. And I think if you can do that, you then become somebody that's an integral part of the organization as opposed to that person who sits over there in the corner in the procurement team um and you can really show you can add value so i and yes it's um procurement is a profession and you can get a a a, a, um, a qualification in it and you can have a really successful career and i know plenty of people who've done that but i think if you really want to make an impact from a a social perspective and an environmental perspective, then you've got to become an integral part of the wider organization to help the organization as a whole really make make a difference because that's the only way that we're going to really, really face into these big global challenges that the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are there to help us achieve. That's absolutely fantastic advice, Robin, and one expanded vision of what a procurement leader can be and deliver. Thank you so much for your time, Robin. I'm so, so grateful, one, for the information you've shared and your insights, but also for being so 
candid and being willing to open up about your own personal experiences and background. I know an awful lot of listeners will take an awful lot away from this today. So thank you so much. Um, I am really looking forward to seeing you face to face once the lockdown's over. Yeah. And thanks again for being such a fantastic champion for Wild House. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mick. I really enjoyed that. <laughs>